You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me from afar, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Yes, Kyla, nice to talk to you. I'm sitting beside the headwaters of the Fraser River. I'm parked in my vehicle on a uh, gravel bar. A gravel bar? That yep. does not sound like good drinking. Well, there's many times that I drank quite a bit parked on this gravel bar, sitting at this gravel bar, not necessarily parked in my vehicle. I camped here a couple of times when I was young, um, but I'm enjoying the view. I'm looking down the Fraser uh, toward uh, Prince Rupert or Prince George right now, I guess. Long way away. That's a three hour drive from here. But mm-hmm. thinking about the, um, the end of another summer. And um, right now it was so hot today. You'd think that summer was never going to end. It was 31 degrees. Um, just blazing and uh, you know that the cooler weather is going to come quickly and the summer is going to come to an end and it's always a sad thing I mean exciting when you're a student facing September but when you're an adult just out in the working world there's kind of the sad end of another summer in your life where you look back and think of all the things that you wanted to do in the summer that you didn't get to do and in the summer's past that you didn't get to do yep not much to do with driving, but uh, as I was driving here um, on the uh, highway between Merritt and Kamloops, had to pull over. Uh, the rain and the hail was so strong and steady, you couldn't see it all. And uh, everybody pulled over and put their hazard lights on on the side of the road. I did so. I mean, I was willing to continue to drive, but I did so primarily because I was worried I would get rear-ended by a semi-trailer truck that couldn't see us. Fair enough. Okay, well, let's talk about driving law and not your driving nightmares. Yes. Well, it was a. It was a. I've never seen it like that. It was a nightmare. Sure. <laughs> we have news, sort of, on the Trial Lawyers Association of British Columbia challenge to the constitutionality of the minor injury caps, um, and the Civil Resolution Tribunal. So as you recall, the Trial Lawyers Association of BC constitutionally challenged uh, provisions of the Civil Resolution Tribunal Act that um, basically took the jurisdiction away from the court and put matters into um, the Resolution Tribunal as long as the tribunal determined that it was a um, minor injury. And one provision of the like legislative scheme that allows them to do that is section 16.1 of the Civil Resolution Tribunal Act. And that section says that the Supreme Court of British Columbia has to stay any civil litigation that's been commenced in court where the Civil Resolution Tribunal has determined or has not yet determined that these are that the injuries constitute what is known as minor injuries within the meaning of the statutory definition. 
So essentially it says, we, the Civil Resolution Tribunal, have more power than you, the BC Supreme Court, to determine whether this is within our mandate. And you can't do anything about cases that are before you until we've determined that it's not within our mandate. And then you can have the case back. That's effectively what the provision says and does. So, of course, as we recall, we talked about this a couple months ago, the Trial Lawyers Association of BC challenged this. They were successful in BC Supreme Court. It was a big day, minor injury caps, unconstitutional uh, violation of the division of powers by stealing jurisdiction from constitutionally enacted Section 96 courts. And the BC Court of Appeals like, nah, nah, judicial review. Remember the robustness of judicial review, Paul? Yep. Yeah. See, I... I look at the IRP scheme and I don't see how this was how they were successful in BC Supreme Court in any event um, the Trailers Association of British Columbia is seeking leave to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada which had not been announced or or published at all and after filing the leave application to the Supreme Court of Canada, they filed a separate application in the Court of Appeal to say, can you stay your judgment insofar well, as it applies? While we, while we appeal to the Supreme, Supreme we, Court of Canada. Well, we seek leave and then if leave is granted until the outcome of the appeal, although if leave is granted, they can also seek a stay from the SEC. So... Yeah. The Court of Appeal had to determine this. And unsurprisingly, the uh, provincial government was like, yeah, no, we don't agree. Of course not. Of but, course they don't. But very interesting, because even though they didn't agree, counsel for the Attorney General of B.C., had already agreed with the Trial Lawyers Association of BC not to file any applications for stays of the Supreme Court proceeding until the um, until the CRT question had been resolved or the leave had been decided. So they already had an agreement between counsel to effectively achieve what the stay would grant. But yeah, the Court of Appeal denied it. Yeah. Court of Appeal wants the status quo, which was that the legislation was in effect. Yes. But also, like, it doesn't really meet the test for a stay. Like, the idea of seeking a stay, first of all, when you have an agreement between parties anyway that would achieve the same thing as the stay, it's an unnecessary use of resources. But secondly, how does it meet the test for a stay? Yeah, I, I don't see how it would meet the test for a stay, which is why I assume that the Court of Appeal made the decision that they had, not that I necessarily expect the Court of Appeal to make decisions that I'm going to agree with, but um, I, I, I don't see how that would meet the test for a stay. There is a there is a scheme in place. It's a scheme in place that's functional. Yep. There's an agreement in place. There's an agreement in place that's functional. The Show me the harm. Yes. Yeah, so, so exactly. Irreparable harm was where they lost. And the, ar the arguments were that um, there was a denial of constitutional rights, which is not an irreparable harm. 
there was expense for litigants going through the process of rebutting the CRT's presumed jurisdiction. That's just money that can be recovered. Prejudice by delay of proceedings for litigants who go through the process of determining if the CRT's jurisdiction has been rebutted, so their Supreme Court actions are put on hold, which means they don't get a sooner trial date, when realistically nobody's getting a civil trial date anytime soon in Supreme Court anyway. Four, that the prejudice occasioned by the risk will, um, by the risk uh, that they would have to rebut the presumptive jurisdiction and that the delay, expense, and risk could lead people to accept lower settlement offers from ICBC. And the court's like, this is not irreparable harm. And they even talk about the evidence that was adduced in the stay application. And among the pieces of evidence adduced in the stay application was that of all of the cases that they had identified, and there were a ton of of plaintiffs, thousands of plaintiffs that are affected by this, according to TLABC. Paragraph 17, the Court of Appeals says, the applicants say that thousands of plaintiffs could be affected, but the impugned legislative scheme has been in force for over 25 months, and the parties have identified only two occasions on which a stay under Section 16.1 resulted in a lost trial date. One of the cases involved a tort defendant who was not insured by ICBC. The other did involve ICBC, but the 10-day trial was reset for January 2023, a delay of only a few months. Most of the claims, estimated at about 2,700, in which a Section 16.1 application is a realistic prospect, were commenced relatively recently, and trial dates have either not been set or are many months away. And the Court of Appeal also said, like, look, like it takes usually three or four months to get an answer on a leave application. So it's not even going to be in a window where it's going to affect many people. And only they they were able from the evidence to identify only 10 out of 2,700 people that could potentially have trial dates that are delayed if leave is granted. Yeah, I'm surprised they bothered asking. Right? You know, like it just doesn't look good. No. It's embarrassing. It hardly looks like it's some sort of huge threat to the public if they right. <laughs> allow the law to continue. And this is the thing, like the 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 whole perception issue that is underscoring this is the messaging that the government sold. Greedy lawyers charging their clients too much money, taking too much settlement money. It doesn't, you know, doesn't matter that that's absolutely untrue, as has been discussed with Eric McGracken and Thomas Harding and Chris Carter and you on this podcast. It doesn't matter that that's false. The public bought into that narrative. Greedy lawyers want to get more money faster. But then you have this application that really didn't have a factual foundation to demonstrate irreparable harm. I mean, maybe if they had sought a stay in individual cases, they might have gotten it. But like to seek the stay as part of the class action, it doesn't like it or not class action, because it's not a class action, but as part of the broader, you know, public interest standing challenge, it doesn't make any sense because it does look like, well, we're upset that we can't, deal with these cases now 
and make money for us now. Like that's the perception that it gives off. Like the court of appeal doesn't say that, but it does have like this reek that the government would sell in that way. And it's hard to not read it in that way. I remember when the IRP scheme was introduced, there were some criminal defense lawyers who were like, but people won't get charged with impaired driving. And I was like, I kept thinking to myself, this is not the angle that we should be, you know, the hill you want to die on. Some yeah. people won't get charged for impaired driving. Right. Uh, as a criminal defense lawyer, I don't want people to be charged for impaired driving. I want to find some way to keep them from getting criminal records for impaired driving. If they're a three-time offender, then I've got no problem with them getting a criminal record. But um, you know, the the 26-year-old who just finished university or the 42-year-old who's had a perfectly clear record for their entire life, I don't want them to get a criminal record. And the lawyers making that argument, it just sounded disingenuous. It's totally um, disingenuous. And, and also, like, you're sitting there thinking to yourself, if that's my lawyer who's in the, on TV saying more people should be charged and getting criminal records for impaired driving, then... That's pretty self-interest motivated and not interested in your clients, uh, your clients' uh, circumstances and assisting your client. Yep. I mean, it's the one good thing of the IRP scheme is that fewer people are getting criminal records for impaired driving. Totally. It's There's many not good things about the IRP scheme and many things that you could argue about and, and they're a lot of the arguments would apply equally so and you know when you're talking about ousting the jurisdiction of the court you know that was an argument that we never really thought about or never put forward forcefully um when we argued about the irp scheme i think that argument might be now alive when it comes to the adp scheme if we were to look at the changes to the adp scheme and how it was uh, dealt with in alberta when they had their first version of an IRP scheme. But in any event, lawyers don't run those arguments that are ones that make it look like you're in it for the money. Yeah. Um, but actually the point that you were making there about not getting a criminal record leads us into our next topic which is a story that you found about, it's, it's actually quite a tragic story um, about a woman in Alberta, I believe. Um, yeah, I think in Calgary. Airdrie. Um, mm -hmm. So this woman was charged with impaired driving, uh, causing death in summer of 2021. Um, the charge, she's a 25 year old woman um, who was charged with impaired driving causing death, failure to stop after an accident resulting in death, operating a motor vehicle over the legal limit um, after crashing uh, into and killing a motorcyclist um, back in June of 2021. And uh, yeah, but tell us about what happened here, Paul. Well, I mean, she died. Um, and, uh, it's one of those articles where they don't tell you the cause of death. So it's likely a suicide. Um, she's awaiting trial. She's 25 years old and she died and it appears to be a suicide. And this is something that, um, uh, we don't talk about, uh, nobody's really recording the statistics, but, uh, I can tell you after doing this job for, you know, 22 and a bit years, 
um, that uh, occasionally people uh, facing criminal charges, rather than going to court, rather than having a trial, rather than, you know, being found not guilty or being found guilty and sentenced, uh, will take their own lives. And um, it, it happens with some regularity. Uh, and now you've got a young woman who's, who's appears to have killed herself. And this is just, I mean, I can't tell you about the cases that have happened, you know, where it was my clients because their privilege goes, um, goes with them to, uh, beyond, beyond the, beyond their death. Uh, but this is something that happens and people don't talk about it. Well, because uh, we don't publish really, um, stories about suicide like the media doesn't publish stories about suicide because they're worried you know it's going to trigger more suicides i know but what we have in the end is a is a tragedy that unfolds that we in the criminal justice system know about where young people often not always young but um shouldn't be they're basically self-sentencing themselves to death um rather than um facing the criminal charge because it's of the way that, you know, their future, they view their future. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you know, worst case scenario. Yeah. She would have been tried, convicted and sentenced to jail for uh, a few years. And you can understand that like she looked at that and said to herself, death is preferable. Um, and that, that, that shouldn't be. I mean, it's a mistake, right? Impaired driving and most of these things are mistakes that many, many people have made. And, you know, many people think, but for the grace of God, go I, that I didn't kill somebody or hurt somebody or cause an accident or get charged. Um, and, um, you know, the, 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 the loss of yet another life out of one of these tragedies is is miserable and ridiculous and and inhumane um and it's really like i i one wonders that there isn't somebody thinking a little bit more deeply about this as a species that we would think that this is okay we came up with these concepts for our justice system you know and we pass legislation promote responsibility um, you know, uh, general deterrence and specific deterrence, and you know, somebody's dead, right? Mm-hmm. She's she's died now as a result of uh, fear of having to face the what we have created are the consequences, whether they're right or wrong, right? Um, of uh, of this offense, and it's. Um, now it's it's largely driven by the public discussion about it. Yeah. You know, you are the worst person ever if you've if you've driven drunk. You're the worst person ever if you've driven drunk and somebody died as a result of it. People die in car accidents all the time. You know, sometimes it's a drunk driver and sometimes it's not. But um, the the manner in which this is publicly discussed, um generates this shame in individuals and the perp walk and the publication of names. And of course we want an open justice system and everything, but I, I'm the more I think about the, 
the stigma of this for an individual in the public, I, I just don't think like, I don't think judges clue in. I think many lawyers don't clue in. Um, I don't think the public is at all clued in about the pain of the stigma. Yep. Um, and I'm, uh, you know, at the end of summer, as I'm, I'm thinking back, I'm, uh, I, I guess I'm thinking about, you know, all of those poor people who have gone through this. Um, you know, of course, we want people to reflect on their behavior and we want people not to make the mistake again. We can't change the fact that they made that mistake, right? The justice system is maybe deters some people, but for the most part, the only thing I see deterring people really is fear of getting caught and education. Mm -hmm. um, but this young woman was, I mean, could have contributed in so many different ways to our society in the future. And in the end, you know, she um, loses her life. Her family is probably devastated, I would expect. Um, and, um, you know, we lose her as a contributing member of society when she made a mistake. It's also, I think, telling about how problematic the consequences are for impaired driving. Like, people are so afraid of of these consequences but they don't have to be there right like everybody with half a brain when they talk about mandatory minimum sentences says that mandatory minimums are bad they're bad for the justice system they're bad for accused persons they're they don't help victims or or you know people affected by crime they don't reduce crime rates they don't deter it's a it's a complete myth that you know, harsh sentences deter criminal conduct. It, it's general deterrence is not, in fact, a real thing. And all the government has to do is like a simple piece of legislation to either get rid of mandatory minimums altogether, or include a safety valve, or just get rid of the impaired driving mandatory minimums and allow people to seek a discharge. But what did they do? Back in 2018, they got rid of discharges for the provinces that had them, including Alberta. Not that you'd get one for killing somebody, but still. Yeah, they doubled down. And um, for no reason that's justified in the social science. Yeah. Um, Less people will drink and drive if you know you're going to get a criminal record. Like, no. There's no, no proof of that. Nobody knows about it. People don't know. Some people, I you know, I've run into people who thought they could get a discharge. Uh, it's a fairly regular thing. People think they can get a discharge for impaired driving. They just have to go to court and ask. I'll go plead guilty and I'll get a discharge. No, no. You're going to get a criminal record. Yeah. Um, I find it interesting. The, um, you know, most good-hearted people, most regular people who don't have like four criminal convictions are so dissuaded by embarrassment and public embarrassment which is debilitating in some respects because you know it keeps people from succeeding for fear of failure and public the public embarrassment with relation to that with respect to that uh, but for most people that is the deterrent right you think of many of our impaired driving clients who were charged with a criminal offense and and in particular women the, the the 
fear of the of standing in court, the fear of the embarrassment of that, the fear of the name, the fear of the getting out that people would know, um, was far more of a disincentive than a criminal conviction. And then I know people who, you know, women who pled guilty just didn't even want to tell their family, um, didn't get help, should have had a lawyer. Uh, and then it changed their whole lives, you know, because they were felt so personally stigmatized that people would know about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not happy with it. And it's not something that's ever been, been uh, publicly discussed. Um, certain prosecutors know it because of course I've gone through it with prosecutors. Um, the, um, and it's unfortunate, but, uh, uh, a number of people in this country every year kill themselves rather than, than, uh, going to court. Uh, and sometimes they're innocent. Sometimes they might succeed in court on a technical defense. Um, but, um, none of them should have a death sentence, even if it's self-imposed. Uh, and it should be something that's publicly discussed and it's not. All right. Now, speaking of death sentences. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have something more cheery than that. Sorry. I was trying to segue into our last topic, which is a case, um, from the BC Supreme Court that was released today, a decision from Justice Smith. Um, I'm a big fan of his. I think he's quite smart and I, I, I like him a lot. Um, Justice Smith, uh, dealing with, we've talked about this before, um, the ICBC privacy breach. So a couple of years ago, you and I talked on the podcast about uh, Kathy Rome. Remember she had been working at ICBC and people were giving her license plate numbers of people who'd been parked in the parking lot of the Justice Institute. And then she was using ICBC systems and getting paid $25 per license plate number to look up those people's information. And then she was selling it to people who were probably involved in some organized crime who were then committing arsons and shooting the people who were targeted in these attacks. And so she ended up um, pleading guilty to um, fraudulently accessing computer services. And, you know, there were other, um, other issues. Mr. Chung Chung, uh, pled guilty to a bunch of arson and firearms offenses. He got 12 years in jail. Apparently he had like a drug induced paranoia that he was being targeted and controlled by the justice Institute. And he got the license plate numbers in the parking lot. Um, for that purpose. And then uh, Mr. Taft got 145 days jail and two years probation for his involvement. So one question that was never resolved was what happens to all these people? I think it's actually a good sort of illustration of the difference between our criminal justice system and our civil justice system. What happened to all these people who got harmed, who suffered harm, as a result of these breaches of their personal information, whether it's serious harm like arsons and shootings, or whether it was just their, you know, their dignity and their privacy. So there was a class action lawsuit brought um, 
against the Insurance Corporation of British Columbia for allowing this to happen. Deep pockets, why not? Yeah. And it went to summary trial, and Justice Smith heard the summary trial and resolved the class action. So uh, he determined that Ms. Rome breached the class member's privacy pursuant to the Privacy Act, that class members are entitled to general non-pecuniary damages on a class-wide basis, that individual class members are also entitled for pecuniary damages for losses suffered and expenses incurred due to her breach, as well as any individual non-pecuniary damages over and above that suffered by all class members subject to proof of those damages. So they not only will they collect something for the damage to their privacy rights, they also get their expenses back for the arsons and the... Um, and the shootings or any other criminal harm that be, befell them, the ICBC, ICBC was held to be vicariously liable for general damages and pecuniary damages, that the attacks were not unforeseeable intervening acts, and their liability extends to the property damage that people suffered as a result of the attacks, um, they're, they're part of a subclass, people who weren't targeted in the attacks, but who suffered damages as a result because of mm-hmm. the way that our system works. Um, yeah. The individual subclass members are entitled to damages over and above the general damages awarded to the whole class. Uh, but ICBC did not have to pay punitive damages, notwithstanding that basically everything that they did was super bad as far as like not implementing literally any of the recommendations that the privacy commissioner gave them in 2009 to prevent things like this from happening. Huh. But Fascinating. I wonder how many people are in the class. I wonder how many millions of dollars this is going to cost ICBC. Jump change for ICBC. But where does the but money can come, come back and try and collect it from that individual who was stealing the information? Oh, there's probably no not because it's ICBC negligence here. Yeah, they they were negligent. They're found to be um, vicariously liable, so they can't point to her. Yeah, it's done. They're they're on the hook. Their only options an appeal. Well, they might appeal it. Uh, you know, ICBC has good luck at the Court of Appeal generally. Mm-hmm. This is true. Might be worth their while. Yeah. Anyway, I think very interesting case. That is fascinating. Yeah, I very much like the uh, like the outcome here. Speaking of things that I very much like, Paul. Yes. I think it's time that we talk about the ridiculous driver of the week. driver of the week i love the ridiculous driver of the week this is a great one do you have it pulled up on your computer uh not on my computer but on my phone good well this was sent to me by my friend dave trap i think i saw it and i i passed by it and then he sent it to me and i finally went and read it it's great Mm mm-hmm 
So a 78 year old woman um, drove her SUV 60 yards through the walkways of a mall in Massachusetts. She literally drove through automatic doors to enter the mall through the parking garage, then down the central corridor. Like you had to know at this point you're in the mall. She keeps going. She's in a big Lincoln SUV, keeps going. She goes through a pedestrian bridge, takes out a a safety bollards, a shopping cart dock. Um, She reverses, goes around the dock, makes a left turn, goes down the central corridor and stops basically right outside a store called Torrid, which is like gothy clothes for plus size people. Um, And uh, she... (laughs) then gets out of her car goes do you know how to get out of here (laughs) well i mean uh, she's probably got dementia or something or it's early and in in that and that's a difficult thing to deal with but pretty damn funny she drove into a mall i think she was looking for the apple store yeah um the uh it can be confusing where the threshold is there you're in the parkade you're in the ball i mean i don't know it depends on how the down somehow she managed to get through doors and drive in right without yeah. smashing anything um but yeah pretty funny the amount of driving that she did in there all to try and get to the apple store yeah i love it it's great unfortunately for her the police have sent a uh, request to the Registrar of Motor Vehicles in Massachusetts to immediately suspend her license. Yeah, I think she would have to demonstrate. I mean, it could have been a drug interaction. It could have been all sorts of different things. Just general confusion, you know. I remember once I drove to the uh, to the senior's home where my grandma was, uh, but she hadn't been there for two years. This was after I had my head injury a few years back. And I stood there looking on the uh, directory, trying to find my grandma on the directory. And, and I had visited her in the in the location that she was in. She had been moved to the old general hospital in Alberta, two blocks away from where I was. And I was so confused. And then I sat there and shook my head and realized, oh, my gosh, she hasn't lived here for three years. She's over there. I know where she is. What the hell am I thinking? So sometimes your brain just doesn't work, you know? Yeah, I hear you. That's that's fair. The human uh, story. Yeah. Well, that's our podcast. No. And I enjoyed. I enjoyed the podcast. That is the podcast. Yeah, we're done. And if you have any questions, if you need to get a hold of us, if you would like to discuss your decision to drive around in the mall, you can give us a call at six zero four six eight five. 8889. You can find us at VancouverCriminalLaw.com. Kyla's Twitter handle is IRP Lawyer. And also, she has a huge TikTok presence that's widely followed and is absolutely fucking hilarious. So, if you're on the internets, track down Kyla's TikTok. You'll be able to entertain yourself for a long time there with her very interesting TikToks. And tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.